What duality means to me is to seeing me, all the perspectives of the situation. The idea story. that what there are two sides to every story. Everyone has their own truths they hold on to. Everything is multifaceted. Such a polarized world. Things are in a way that's much more complex. And even combined just like this other duality is seen everywhere. I tend to look at situations differently at one time. Life is full of duality. Hello, welcome to Influx Podcast. This week, we're talking social justice and politics with people of color on our staff. This whole episode is written and hosted by people of color, women of color specifically, and it's so, so, so fun. I'm so excited. But first off, I'm Tina. I host the last Influx Podcast episode, and I'm just as excited, if not more, for this episode. And for episode two, we have Samantha, Hannah, and Jasmine with us. How about y'all introduce yourselves real quick? Hi, everyone. My name is Sam. Um, I am a senior majoring in journalism. I am part of the writing team. And one spicy fact about me is that I love watching movies with my bunny. Hi, Samantha. Um, It's good to talk with you. Um, Hi, my name is Hannah. I'm a senior um, studying political science and journalism, and I am on the social media and podcast team. And I've been to a tech conference. It was a lot of fun. Hi guys, uh, I'm Jasmine. Um, I'm also a senior and I'm majoring in professional journalism. Uh, I'm on the social media team for Influx. And uh, one spicy fact about me is that I enjoy watching Tarot Love Readings too much. (laughs) There's no such thing as too much, Jasmine. But (laughs) thank y'all for for introducing yourselves. I'm super excited to discuss with y'all about these very important topics. So first off, we're over a year into this pandemic now, and we've lost almost 3 million people globally, of which over 500,000 are in the U.S., according to John Hopkins University's COVID-19 dashboard. And of course, unsurprisingly, the pandemic has disproportionately impacted people of color and their ability to pay rent, buy food, maintain a job, according to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And so I just want to ask all y'all, how has the pandemic affected you or those close to you? And what has the pandemic shown to you about America that you can't unsee? Well, I guess to begin, the p- pandemic has been, has affected a lot of people close to me. I've seen people who've lost jobs, um, had a hard time paying for rent, and really suffered with mental health during the pandemic. But I think it's shed light on a lot of inequalities that have been prevalent in our system in the U.S., um, which I guess was necessary. It had to happen at some point in time. Yeah, right. I also like, I lost my jobs. I think, I mean, everybody did. And it definitely took a toll on my mental health. Um, But kind of piggybacking off of what Hannah said, is that like the pandemic only exacerbated issues that were already problematic. They were already here. They never left. And like that light was just shed on it. Um, Just definitely within like our schools, inequalities and underrepresented communities. And as much as that we kind of don't want to see that, because it is kind of sad, it needs to be like brought up. Yeah, and I agree. Um, and I also just can't unsee the fact that we are all fighting over toilet paper. I still don't understand why we thought that was the most important thing. Um, but I think it also shed light on, I guess, how kind of centered around ourselves we are and just how much we just kind of are like the routine and like doing what we want. So I think a lot of people are maybe a little selfish when it came to just like staying indoors and the fact that they still got their uh, Netflix and their technology and their phones, it was just interesting to see how hard that was for a lot of people. For sure. I think 
y'all are all y'all saying great things. I think we see a lot of privilege really um, in the system and how it's really speaking of others when they kind of have these issues that are just kind of, this seems kind of small compared to like the bigger picture of things. Like there are people who are struggling for healthcare during the pandemic. They're struggling mm-hmm. to keep food on the table or keep a roof over their heads. And, and then you have all these other people that are talking about haircuts, you know, and like mm-hmm. not being able to like go to their appointments or go to the gym. And you kind of almost have to laugh, but also it's a real serious issue. And I think we just see all this privilege just really being highlighted because of the pandemic. And now we can't even agree on wearing a mask, which scientists have proven that it works. It's, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Yeah, it's just, I think our society as a whole in the United States is very individualistic. We can't kind of, we can't seem to step out of our own way and care for others or do things for others without thinking about how it's going to affect us. So over the past year, we haven't just been fighting the coronavirus, but also the virus of racism in all its forms. We witnessed the killing of George Floyd right here in Minneapolis. We saw the marches for Black lives lost due to police brutality. And we're now hearing the calls for justice during the Chauvin trial. I know you're all tired. I'm tired. I've been thinking a lot about what justice for George Floyd looks like and how people of color can move from surviving to flourishing. So in this case, what do you think justice looks like? I think like justice will look different for everyone. And I feel like no matter the outcome, someone is going to be upset with what's going to happen. But I think just starting with cops being held responsible for their actions and for killing uh, Black people all the time, um, I would like to see something happen and for him to be held responsible. But at the end of the day, there's so many other victims like Breonna Taylor that didn't really get any type of justice. Um, And I think it's just like, really rooted in our system and we just have I feel like we've gone or like such a far way just with how many people like call it out and are using their platforms to call it out but we still it still shows that we have a lot further to go I completely agree with that Jasmine and I always think about it and I'm like well justice is obviously getting him back and we can't have that but like how we move forward we can take control of that and I really like to see the conversations about like how we want to re-envision public safety and what that looks like, um, which I think has become a more engaging conversation than it has been in the past. So that gives me a bit of hope. Right. I agree with that, Hannah. Um, and especially about envis- envisioning public safety. I think we definitely need to have a conversation about like changing like our laws, like kind of like our constitution. It wasn't made for like people of color right now. Um, it was done by white men and like it needs to be updated it needs to be brought in the conversation and making sure it's inclusive of all people not just one yeah for sure I think just to connect everybody together I feel like justice really happens when we listen to people of color or more specifically when we listen to the people that are impacted by these injustices because when people of color say there's systematic racism that means there's an issue with the system itself and that it needs to be kind of broken down and rebuilt back up again because like y'all said this constitution this country was built for white people it was built so they could have privilege so they could have success but really when people of color try to be part of this country and try to succeed it's impossible we there are so many barriers there's so many closed doors we're constantly getting no's and 
it's just not fair. But I really do think we can't move towards a more just system without like really repealing some laws and some policies that are just systemic in nature. So in this country, rhetoric plays a huge role in public opinion and discussion. And during the Trump administration, we saw how rhetoric impacted the lived experiences of people of color. And so when discussing immigration, the administration spurred division, insisting a border wall would stop people from seeking a better life, which is the most American thing imaginable. The Trump administration's zero tolerance policy separated over 5,000 minors from their parents, according to the New York Times. The Biden administration is still locating the parents of children separated. And now we're seeing a huge surge of migrants at the border seeking a place of refuge, many of which are unaccompanied children. So given our American history and the lived experiences, do you believe the American dream exists? Was it ever a thing in the first place? Uh, I think the American dream is a thing. I just don't think it's really a thing for a person of color. I think no matter how hard we work and push ourselves to be educated or to be have the best jobs I think we're always going to still be pushed behind um and just like even as women we could be like way more educated to someone we can still be paid a lot less than them Mm -hmm. I agree with you Jasmine but I also sometimes think like the American dream was essentially kind of made up I think the American dream was for white people um and I I I think it varies too, because sometimes I think it's unobtainable. And I feel like most people won't achieve it because it's it's hard to do well when you don't already have like an established foundation that's helping you, that's providing for you, that you can lean back on and, and fall for that matter. Um, but really, I think there's like just an economic divide between like the rich and poor and people who are white and non-white. But I also think it depends on who you ask. You know, the American dream can mean a plethora of things. Yeah, I agree with that, Sam. I know as a daughter of immigrants, I can see why people would believe in the American dream. I mean, my parents came here for a better life too. They've been here for decades, but I've watched them struggle and the the dream hasn't become a reality for them. And I know that's true for a lot of um, immigrant parents. And I know the, shred, the kids are trying to live out that dream for them, but I don't know, maybe it's just some made up thing, kind of like a bumper sticker to get people to come here and you know to capitalize I feel like a lot of uh children of immigrants just see their parents and what they go what they've like went through um and they just work like probably like two to three jobs trying to provide for them and they just want to like it's a lot of pressure to want to like be just as good and uh be able to take care of your parents and kind of pay them back in a way when you're older Yeah, I'm also a child of immigrant parents. And the more hopeful side of me would say, like, yes, I want the American dream to exist. I want my parents' work, like decades of labor to mean something. And I want them to feel satisfied that all this work they put in was worth it. But the other side of me just sees the American dream as a thing that exploits labor from people who are hopeful in the system when the system is actually just working against them and like capitalizing off of like their struggle and not being able to like break the cycle, I guess. Mm -hmm. And and Jasmine, what you said earlier about being a child of immigrant parents, it makes you feel really sad because you wanna be like that shining proof or example that this can happen, that the American dream is a real like achievable thing. And then you're able to give your family a life like they imagined when they first came here. But once again, like 
that's a lot of pressure and especially the pressure to succeed in a world that's against you like it's impossible to feel not burdened by that so on march 16th eight people got killed during mass shootings at spas and massage parlors in atlanta georgia six of them were asian women their deaths come as hate crimes against asian american pacific islanders or aapi um, and these crimes are at an all-time high. From March 2020 to February 2021, there were over 3,700 reports of anti-Asian hate incidents, according to a report from SOP AAPI Hate National. And on March 19th, President Biden gave a speech urging Congress to pass his COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. This bill would provide more oversight on coronavirus-related hate crimes, more support for law enforcement agencies, and more transparency on hate crime information for Asian American communities. But what do y'all think is missing from Biden's administration response to attacks against the AAPI community? And how can we better support the Asian community? Well, one, I think we just, this is a time where we all need to be in solidarity with one another. I think that's so important. And I also think that this bill is going to be interesting because like how I feel like it's hard to kind of prove what hate crimes look like when it really has never been studied or really written about. So I think, especially for the Biden administration to have like a positive response, um, I think it's important for them to approach like any community or subject with sensitivity, but also like learning about it and getting a better understanding of who you're working with. Um, I think also making that effort to reach out to community influencers who are important in those many communities um, and get to know those folks who do live there and who do know that community and ask them, what do you think? You know, we need to learn from one another. There's just not one solid answer from one, you know, one person that includes many. Yeah, I agree with uh, what Sam said with kind of just like reaching out to your friends and just people and just really like asking how you can support them. Um, I think like posting on Instagram is great, but I think there needs to be more action behind those like pretty little things you're posting about uh, hate and stuff. And I think just kind of having more responsibility and just more accountability put on the people that are like causing the things that are happening. I feel like POC are always like the ones kind of looked at in a bad light when those things do happen. And it's kind of, I think I even saw something, it was like, how can these people, other POC support other POC when it's kind of like, well, how can also like white people support since a lot of it has been kind of caused by them when it comes to mass shootings instead of putting POC against each other. I totally agree with what you're saying, Jasmine, because I feel like with all the different media, all the different outlets and platforms, there tends to be more of a fragmented response among racial communities, both from our government and like among each other. And it's hard to really... C- to any real progress when really we all see things in different ways and all want different things and also I think as an Asian American woman like myself like of course I want to see change happen for my community I want us I want to feel safe when we go in stores when we're surrounded by other people but also I don't want us moving forward to be a step back for other communities for other communities of color more specifically because there's been talks about um elevating the law enforcement around certain areas, but I don't want our progress to be involved in anti-Black rhetoric. I don't want other communities of color to feel unsafe in order for us to feel more safe, quote unquote. I want real change to happen for all people of color. And I think it starts with listening. 
I agree with that, Tina. And I remember like the day after um, the events in Atlanta happened, I texted you, Tina. And I was like, how can I like help you and support you? And you're like, well, I mean, what can you really do? Like, I feel like we're all kind of getting stuck where it's like people of color, like we can be in solidarity together, but like, how do we move towards action? I'm always thinking, you know, it's great to have these healing spaces, but like once you leave those spaces, you're still dealing with the reality of oppression day in and day out. And I think until we really ask some deep questions about transformational change, we'll continue being oppressed. Mm -hmm. I think you said it pretty, pretty plain and simply, like there's a pattern and sure we can listen to each other, very important, don't get me wrong. Sure, we can have like these discussions, but what's gonna happen after that? You know, like what's gonna actually make real change happen? And then who's gonna be the one leading that? So as students of color at a predominantly white institution at the University of Minnesota, how do y'all navigate this campus and what truths do you grapple with? Or how do you balance your identities in this uncertain world? Well, I will say I'm constantly in a state of double consciousness. Um, I feel like I'm grappling through many different realities, like as a Black woman, as a first-gen student, um, as a child of immigrants. I'm constantly thinking, okay, like, I obviously need to succeed and do well. I mean, for my parents, they came here for a reason, so I should not spoil that. But then I'm constantly like, this world we're living in is a mess, and it's a constant battle to move forward. So I guess I lean on my faith heavily and I lean on family and friends to get me through but I feel like I'm constantly not feeling like I belong in many places like the other day I was thinking would if I wasn't born in Minnesota would I be in Minnesota I have no idea it always makes me question things so but yeah I don't know how about you yeah I feel like as people of color in white classrooms we tend to feel like this extra pressure to kind of speak up use our voice, um, take more leadership roles. I think this is a way that it makes us feel like more sure of ourselves in these spaces, but also it kind of opens the door for the people that come after us, for other people of color. But I think on the flip side of that, we tend to glorify breaking barriers or breaking through glass ceilings. We tend to see it as like this great exciting thing that like will move us and like the community forward, which, you know, it is an amazing thing. But also, that's a lot of burden on us to carry through, to execute, and feel satisfied by it. Because when will it ever be enough? I just feel like there's always going to be another glass ceiling, another barrier, some that we have to break through. And it gets really tiring. And I question if I really have the energy to like keep pushing mm-hmm. myself to do these things. Mm-hmm. Because I, I find strength in my community, but also me as an individual, I'm just one person, you know? Yeah, I would agree with uh, what Hannah said before, just kind of struggling with where I belong. Um, Just like, yeah, being a Black woman and then also like being African um, and then sometimes like not feeling Black enough or African enough Mm -hmm. and like just uh, getting pressure just uh, from your peers can be a lot. But I feel like we just kind of have to be ourselves and just kind of do what makes us happy. And I also agree with just feeling a lot of pressure in classrooms. I don't know if anyone else, like just like growing up, like when it's gets to like the slavery topic, everyone looks very like at you and expects yeah. you to like speak up and it's just like the most awkward thing ever. And I just feel like 
we shouldn't put a pressure on ourselves to always be the ones to like speak up if we don't want to. Right. And I also think it's up to our other like white peers to also do their research and educate themselves in order to avoid putting like people of color in those situations. Because like you said, like it's, it's, I'm sure like that's so awkward and it's not your job or anyone else's job to speak up on anything really. Like we all should do our part, especially in society and just learn and do the best that we can to be supportive. And I don't know, just not essentially be dumb about a situation especially like the U is really white so it doesn't really help that there's kind of a small population of like students of color on campus but I think not turning on other students of color to answer those questions and really putting it more on white you know our white peers to do so I think that would kind of be a, a good change in that dynamic. How do you deal with burnout because you were kind of hinting at it earlier where your energy is like depleted. And I was talking to a friend the other day and I was like, I feel like I'm in my forties, but I'm only in my twenties. And I'm like, how do people, and like, after this, we go out into the world and, you know, working like typically nine to five or like 40 plus hours a week. Like, how do you deal with burnout? To be honest, I don't think I really deal with it. And I think that's like a whole other discussion. Like Mm. we're expected to just push through when we're burnt out and just keep going because who else is going to do this work, you know? And I, it's really sad if you think about it. Like I've been feeling more and more like depleted lately and mm-hmm. just really tired and drained, but also like I have to keep going, you know? Mm-hmm. I just feel yep. like there's no other choice. And it sounds maybe like a touch dramatic, but really this is like our reality, you know? Like yeah, our parents did so much for us. Our education is literally like, it's adding more and more like debt, you know? Mm-hmm. So like we have to like, make use of the space and like amplify and like take up space, you know? It's so important mm-hmm. that as people come in that we take up space, but also like, I'm so, so, so tired. <laughs> and I'm, yeah, I know you can relate, Hannah. What do you feel uh, about like, I guess the U of M and like your t- uh, professors, I just feel like they could do better at making people feel safe. Like for example, the one Carlson student who got the cops called on him when he was just trying to get like a laptop from the library. Mm-hmm. How do you think, I guess we could approve on that and have students feel safer or POC students feel safer? I mean, I think it starts with creating, like you said, those, because I know we have spaces on campus. Huh? I mean, we have MK, we have the Presence Emerging Scholars Program. We have um, multicultural <laughs> groups on campus, but collectively as a university, I don't think we really recognize first-gen students or people of color on campus as a collective. I don't think the university does it enough. And I think until they really put that as a focus point, then it's gonna be all these tiny little spaces we have on campus in like a couple of buildings. And that's just not enough. Yeah, it almost tends to feel kind of segregated almost. Mm -hmm. You have these separate spaces for people of color, but that's not enough necessarily because like that's not our reality like we'll feel safe in these spaces but when we step out it's just going to be we're the minority all over again and also just address what sam said earlier like it's really important that white people they show up they educate themselves but it's not our job as people of color to hold them accountable to do that they themselves Mm -hmm. have to take that initiative to educate themselves and i think the university like as a whole, they have a whole lot of reckoning to do when it comes to making the campus safer for people of color, for students of color. 
And I would say educate and then take that to the ballot box because it's one thing to know this stuff, but then if you're not voting out like racist policies, then systemic racism is just going to continue to exist. Right. I think also looking at like who is at, who is the university, especially starting with our staff, because like we all know it's a very small, very small percentage of staff who are not white. And I think that would really resonate well with students too, to be taught by someone that doesn't look like them and who doesn't have the same like shared experiences, viewpoints, et cetera, you know? I think that itself is just gonna help us all really to become more understanding and, you know, more sympathetic and empathetic to people who may not have it as well as we do or, you know, in that realm. So that concludes um, episode two. I would like to thank everyone for joining us. I'd also, more importantly, to thank our guests, Sam, Hannah, and Jasmine for joining us today. Thanks, Thanks for having so us. It's been fun. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, this was so fun. I'd also like to thank Hannah again for being our writer for today's episode. She's so talented. And a shout out to Maddie H. and Skyler W. for editing this episode as well. Be sure to follow us on social media at InfluxUMN, I-N-F-L-U-X-U-M-N. And remember to say Influx with us. Until next time. Thank you.